Welcome to the Novel Discourse Podcast, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. I'm Sam, hoping you enjoyed your holiday, Thanksgiving weekend. Hope you got to spend it with friends or family, or at least just got to eat your weight in good food, or maybe just got some time off of work, or at a bare minimum that you're enjoying this cooler weather. And hope you're looking forward to the holiday season as much as I am. We've got a really exciting, fun conversation Mark Rosedorf, we want to share with you today. He is the author of the award-winning YA series, The Witches of Vegas. Here to talk about a number of things, just world building and how to do time travel the right way. Uh, we also talk about how to make your writing timeless. And, and we just kind of go through and comparing and contrasting how some movies, television shows, and, and even novels get outdated really quickly. Really fascinating conversation, honestly, it's the kind of conversation that I wish I had had about seven or eight years ago when I started my my writing career. It probably would have saved me a lot of manuscripts that ended up in the bottom of my trunk. If you are either a writer or an audience member who maybe you just want to know more about the technical aspects of how to get it done the right way and how good stories are told, you're going to really enjoy this conversation. Mark has a handful of key rules that he uses with each of his stories um, a lot of authors have their key rules. It is famously like Brandon Sanderson's Rules of Magic. Stephen King had his book on writing um, that a lot of people use as kind of their Bible. I think these rules do a really good job of condensing how to get good stories done the right way. So definitely a fun listen. Some, uh, some housekeeping notes on the show. Um, if you listen to us, you know that there's been about two weeks since we released our last episode. Kind of a combination of things. One, just getting ready for the holidays, enjoying times with friends and family, but also preparing for some pretty intensive shows coming up in the next about six weeks. We have two novel episodes for two novels that I won't get into, but I will tell you that they're about 500 pages each in length, so quite a bit of preparation needed for those. The cadence in which we're releasing episodes is kind of going to be all over the map in the winter. If you're wondering when we're going to release those episodes, uh, I can tell you this. There's one way that you can keep up with our show, and that is to subscribe. You can subscribe to us on you know, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe, turn on your push notifications, and you'll see whenever our latest episodes come out. In about January 2023, we'll pick our cadence back up and be releasing episodes about every 10 days. Got a lot of exciting content coming out in the next three months, um, primarily in the television space. We're going to be doing Andor, going to be doing White Lotus, um, but also some novels like I hinted at. I won't tell you which ones, but it's good content. I just told you to subscribe, but while you're at it, go ahead and like the show or leave a review because all of that is going to help us massage the algorithm and climb the charts, which is really what we're what we're looking for right now, it will help us to create great content for you guys and to know what it is that you're looking for here at Novel D. So without further ado, um, here's a conversation with Mark. I'll leave some content in the show notes, but if you're interested in Mark's content, The Witches of Vegas, like I said, award-winning YA series, has a unique magic system. He's got a book coming out in January 2023, and so... It's up for pre-order right now. You can go to markrosendorf.com. You can find him on Twitter, at Mark Rosendorf. Start clicking around. Go to Amazon. Pre-order this book. And um, reach out to him on Twitter. 
get that engagement. Let him know you heard him on this podcast. Greatly appreciate that. And without further ado, here is Mark. Your article came in at a perfect time for me because I am working on a novel that's coming out in July 2023. By working on, I mean I'm like finishing up. But I started going back and doing some world building behind the scenes for sequels and and things like that, appendices that I'll be putting on my website, just to kind of flush out the world that I've that I've started thinking of. And then you come out with the article about making your world building timeless and and really your story timeless. So thanks for that. And it kind of helped me flush out like everything that I had in mind. Uh, Where did you come up with that? When did you come up with that? And why did you come up with that? So the Witches of Vegas series actually came to me at two o'clock in the morning. Um, I used to be a professional magician as well as a writer. And I'm I'm a school guidance counselor. I work with special needs students on the high school level. And I don't perform now anymore, but I do train my students in magic and teach them. And then they do shows. Um, I used to write and adult books and I basically gave it up. Um, I think the last book that I wrote was in 2012, 2013. I, I figured, well, I'm all done with writing. It's now all behind me. And I was fine with that. So one morning I'm up at two in the morning, just, you know, you have had those nights you just can't sleep. And I'm thinking all the work that we put into, um, you know, into our magic shows, it might as well, you know, it be to, to the audience, it might as well be witchcraft. And I thought, what a great concept for a book. And I started looking for a book that had that concept and it wasn't anywhere. And then the next night, just all the ideas, well, who would the main characters be? Now, first of all, like I should write young adult because I've worked with young adults for so long. And then, well, who's the main character? The character pops in my head, then the next character. And then the whole, like, it just hit me one after the other. Obviously, it has to be in Las Vegas because Vegas is the magic capital of the world. Right. And no, it, that's a good it, setting choice, for sure. It, Did it, now, yeah. now, does that mean you're a discovery writer or you sound like a discovery writer, not a planner? I'll say for the first book, yeah, it was, it was all discovery. The ideas just popped. Um, the second book, I had the concept of them going to a village which was a sanctuary for witches from all around the world that have been there for hundreds of years that I actually had to plan out. And the hardest part of it is, you know, they're traveling there because their youngest gets sick and they can't figure out why. And they don't even know if this village exists. Obviously they're going to end up there. And I realized, well, the, you know, when they arrive, this village can't just suddenly exist. It had to have already had a history, you know, events have, are going on, you know, when they show up. Just like in our lives, our lives don't start now. There's a lot of history. Like we're meeting for the first time, but both of us have a lot of history. And that had to be the case there. Before I, they even got to the village, I had to put together the history, the government, the, what it looks like physically, then who the people are, you know, who's the president, who's, you know, what is their government? And then from there, I had to work on well, what's been going on before they got there, before I even wrote one word about the village. And I think that's something that, you can always tell when, a, especially in high fantasy, when the author hasn't really thought out some of those things, the repercussions of their of their storytelling actions. And I'm not going to say that I'm an expert in world building. I'm no George R. R. Martin. I don't think anybody is. No, uh, him, or right? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to invent my own language. You know. Um, but I think there's a happy middle ground of. Hey, I'm going to at least do a little bit of research into like what these words mean or um, there's actually a funny story. I actually read about this a few weeks ago. Um, Man, I should have this name pulled up. I think it was the guy who wrote 
the boy in the striped pajamas. I want to say that was that this author's name. Did you hear about his uh his red dye issue that he had? No. Okay. And and if this is if I've got the author and book's name wrong, I'll I'll edit this after the pod, but <laughs> uh I read that this guy whichever author this was googled or let's just say this he published a book and this is a guy that's published like bestsellers before he published a book and the scene had the main character dyeing some of his clothes red and he's listing the process for doing it and it included things like getting spicy peppers and a hyrulean mushroom and all these different things and then people that picked it up realized you are describing the process to dye clothes in Zelda Breath of the Wild, the video game. And it turned out that he had just Googled how to dye red clothes and then clicked the first link and it had to, it was like how to do this on the video game. And then he, he put the wrong instructions of how to dye something. So I think as authors, it's super easy to do like the minimum amount of research into world building uh, and with a high fantasy, it's, we can get away with, I think, not doing that as much. My question to you is, when do we, when do we, when is it enough? When do we know that we've done enough research into the background of these fictional places and these stories, as opposed to just like, you know, making it up and then, and then publishing it? Well, for one thing, you got to be careful because as th- this situation you just pointed out, that could be a copyright lawsuit. Right. So you got to make sure you're not taking from anyone else. One advantage of fantasy is you can make things up. Like the main thing I tried to do with the Witches of Vegas series, I wanted the witchcraft to be completely different than any other book. Hmm. Of course, I had to do my research and know and know that I'm not copying any other style. I love a good magic system. What is the what is the magic system? So as I mentioned, I'm a guidance counselor. And one of the things we learned about was Carl Jung, who was a psychiatrist back in the day of Sigmund Freud. And he had something called synchronicity, which he believed that the world is made of energy and that we can actually control it. And when things go our way, things don't go our way. Um, when like someone is able to pick up the car off their child, like they have that moment of strength, someone can see into yeah. a moment in the future. They're tapping in, their brain is tapping into the energy that's around the world. And we're actually controlling the reality around us. And I said, wow, what a great concept. So what if we took that to the next level? you know, witches who actually can do this consciously. That was the basis of the witchcraft in the Witches of Vegas. I like that magic system primarily because it reminds me of the one that I've, I'm currently working on a little bit. Um, in the, in the sense that it is, there's rules to it, but it's also open enough for interpretation and you can bend things certain ways and it's not set in stone. What I did. Uh, The other rule of course, is that the more experienced they are, the more powerful they are the more control they have. So the witches who have a 500-year-old vampire um, as their mentor, he's actually the catalyst of all of this because um, a a witch that he turned into a vampire 400 years ago has now returned seeking vengeance on the world, on the vampire, on Vegas, on the world. So obviously she's her name is Valeria. She's extremely powerful because she's had 400 years' experience Controlling, yeah. you know, controlling the power, which puts all of the heroes immediately at a huge disadvantage. This is both a, a question about the magic, and you've kind of hinted at this already, that you're 
tie into magic has kind of led you into the story. Right. We did a podcast uh, that's going to be released in a week on Casino. And okay. we were talking about, we were kind of being fanboys of the city of Vegas in general, about how Vegas is kind of like a perfect real city to make a bunch of stories because there's like built-in stakes into Vegas. There's money being moved around. There's bad things going on. There's a lot of gray moral area things going on. There's like a kind of, it's like the dark underworld of whatever world you want to write is like hiding in plain sight. And that's kind of what you've described with your book. Uh, How fun was it and how easy was it in in ways to, Um, to write about Vegas and, I just feel like you picked the perfect setting for this novel. Well, let me start. When I came up with the idea with the book of The Witches of Vegas, the family, we took a trip to Vegas. Okay. Because I wanted to see it. I wanted to experience it. I went around the strip with my notepad because my goal was to make Vegas practically its own character in the book. Yeah. And the first one, I think I did a great job. Well, people have said I've done a great job with it. Of course, that's always open to interpretation. But that was the goal that I wanted people to feel Las Vegas in that book. That's why I had, you know, the book is actually um, half the cast is the witches. The other half are actual magicians who are, you know, unable to handle this new magic show where they just can't, you know, compete with it. Right. And of course, was, it, was that your first trip to Vegas? Was the research was. trip? It was. And I loved it. I felt, I mean, it was, I just fell in love with the whole atmosphere. Yeah. Of Vegas. It's, so, I mean, it's something I'm else. The book, very much so. <laughs> I always tell people that either aren't from the States or maybe haven't gotten around the States. Like I would say Vegas is legitimately a top three city in the U S that you have to visit because it's just so different. It's like nothing you've ever seen before. I mean, it's a great place to vacation. I don't know about living there, working there, but for a vacation, I loved it. I went to the shows. I, yeah. I completed one of my bucket lists, which was to always see, I always want to see David Copperfield in person. I had my opportunity to do that. That's awesome. Where'd you guys stay? We stayed at Caesars, and we picked it because it's the dead set. It's the center of Vegas, you know. Of the yeah, strip. Caesars is awesome. I haven't had a chance to stay there, but we've stayed around it a lot. So we stayed at is it Mirage is right just to the north of it. I believe it's, New yeah. York, New York, things like that. So, um, I'm a huge. I, I I have a very like black and white personality when it comes to how I approach my writing. So rules and lists and things like that, I've always found them interesting, and you've got like Brandon Sanderson rules of magic, which I think is pretty much flawless. You've got Stephen King's rules on writing, which I think is flawed in areas or at least personal in his areas. Um, you have your own rules. And I, I wanted to talk about these because I, I tried to nitpick these and I thought they were pretty, pretty bulletproof. And I think it's something I'm going to use moving forward, especially if I write in like right now I'm writing in a, in a high fiction setting to where maybe some of these don't apply but i think there's a lot of these that do apply no matter what genre you're writing and so yeah this is the uh i mean the name of this the the in detail magazine which i haven't heard of before um it's a great name they, for won, magazine. they won the Rhone awards they won the, the what the Rhone awards recognition of novel excellence which is actually a huge ceremony where they do these awards and you know it's major recognition um all independent indie books if you you know there's a lot of process to get nominated and then become a finalist for the Rolling Awards. And it's kind of a big deal. I'm happy to say the Witches of Vegas actually won the two, um, last year's Rolling Awards. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. The, the, this and this magazine in your article was, was great. Um, I uh, You've got this quote at the beginning of your article, which I think is a great goal to set and something that I hadn't really thought much about in my writing. 
my goal of my writing has always been I want people to enjoy it um, and to find entertainment value out of it and not just feel like it's a drag, like a literary piece. But I think yours is a lot more apt and a lot more accurate. You said, uh, it's my goal that if a teenager, say around 15 years old, were to ever stumble upon an old copy of Witches in Vegas in the year 2050, they would have the same reaction to a teenager today. Absolutely. Um, I'm a big I'm a, I'm a big believer when I write. I'm writing not just for the teens or adults today. I'm writing for any time. You know, 50 years from now, they should be able to read this book and relate to it. Yeah. And I call them my Back to the Future rules because a lot of it, part of it came from Back to the Future. A lot of it came from mistakes that I made in my own writing in my previous writing career and also observations that I've made. Now, when you say they're, they come from Back to the Future, are they because Back to the Future did a good job of following these rules or they broke all the rules or a combination um, of both? I'm a huge fan of this of the series, by the way. I recently got to meet Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd, by the way, at Comic-Con. Awesome. Um, I'm a huge fan of Back to the Future, all the books. And I do feel that they've actually, that in some cases they follow these rules, in other cases they've broken those rules. Yeah, and it's funny because I, I was thinking this earlier today when we were getting ready for this discussion. Whether it's because they broke the rules or not, and we, we'll get into that, and I want to hear your take on those specifically. Sure. Um, Back to the Future, you know, I feel like 15 years ago was well within the cultural zeitgeist i feel like everybody was that was like one of the most like 15 referenced movies and films and probably part of that is because we were it was only 10 years old i feel like now people don't ever bring up back to the future and i don't know if that's just my circle or like if it's starting to lose that lust like maybe the younger generation didn't watch it at all i'm just kind of curious if you have any thoughts there if you we go over the least agree it might give some reason as to why we don't talk about it anymore okay let's do that let's let's go over the rules because I, I i do want to go over all of them okay um your first rule and i want to get i want to get your breakdown of each of these rules because i didn't write down exactly what you said in the article all these but your first rule is to try to not use dates that's correct and that goes to back to the future back to the future as i said is a great series i love it when they go to the future the far future. We have flying cars. We have, you know, you put, press your thumb to open the doors. We have these amazing, you know, 3D images. What year was the far future? Can I guess? <laughs> um, I'm going to say like 2018. It was 2015. Oh my gosh. Essentially, everything from Back to the Future takes place in the past. Is and that I when they had the Toyota brakes? That were going out and nobody could stop their car. Maybe that's what they meant by flying cars, flying right? Flying cars and all. Yeah. And I just wonder, would that movie be more relevant if they didn't use dates? Because now you look at it like 2015, it's 2022. We don't have that stuff now. Right. And they're not the only movie that makes that does this. I mean, one of the most famous from 1935 was Flash Gordon, where he gets propelled all the way into the future. And it's an apocalyptic world. It's nothing that looks anything like, you know, his world. And what year was that, that they end up going to? 1985. 1980. <laughs> Golly. So uh. that's why I leave dates out because I feel when you date it, you're dating it. Just as an example, one of my colleagues when I was first writing The Witches of Vegas thought it would told me this would be a great idea. You know, when you're writing something, everybody has opinions, has ideas what you should do. He says, why don't you make it in Vegas when the, we're finally getting out of the pandemic of COVID? And my issue is that, well, then again, you're dating the book because 15-year-olds 50 years from now, you know, COVID is not going to mean anything to them. Right. 
So they're not going to relate to the idea that we're getting out of the pandemic. Yeah, there's something to, how do I word this? I wonder if there are probably certain stories that limit you from being able to do that. Um, I was talking to a buddy about a, a story or a movie that came out the other day that it was taking place. Like part of the plot had to do with the pandemic. And so like those guys, their hands are kind of tied, but like, have you ever encountered moments in your novel where you were almost a little bit boxed in that you couldn't reference the date or all at all? And if you did, were you able to at least kind of frame it into like, this is the decade. I try not to, I try to really keep it generic, which by the way, goes to my second rule, which is on technology. And technology, I actually made the big mistake. I wrote a book called The Rasner Effect, which was about a team of assassins. And one of them was was the tech. He was the tech guy. He used all the latest tech. So since he used all the latest tech, what did he use? He used the BlackBerry. You read that now, that's kind of a joke, you know? Right, right. And so... Um, technology and clothing, I feel needs to be generic. So I have a character, Zach, he's the 15-year-old magician. You know, the, the book is revolved around Zach Galloway, the 15-year-old magician, and Isis Rivera, the 15-year-old witch. And he's big with his phone. And I just say the phone, you know, his phone. I don't make any reference to a smartphone or anything because we know that's going to change over time. Technology yeah. always changes. Same thing with clothing. I try, I try to be very generic with the clothing because clothing styles change. Getting to Back to the Future, it's, it was done in the 80s. They go all the way to that futuristic date of 2015. And if you remember with the clothes, they look like futuristic versions of 1980s clothing. Right. You know, you watch that and they go to the 80s cafe where it's, you know, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev battling each other through Max Hedrum style. That's already outdated. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like we we overestimate what the future is going to look like. And I feel like we underestimate what the past was like in a way. Have you ever watched a movie that is, it's supposed to be a period piece or um, like certain elements of like licorice pizza were like this, where it's a movie that was made like two years ago, but it's supposed to be covering the 1960s. And you almost feel like they're trying to make it to sixties. Stranger thing kind of does that a little bit too, where it's like, we get it. This is the eighties and it's like too much it's too much just like callbacks and like they're you're trying so hard to make it seem like the eighties that it almost feels like I'm watching a, uh, like I'm walking through a museum or something as opposed to just like I'm in the scene. Um, so I guess I agree with you. I mean, I'm not disagreeing under any circumstances. I just think it's interesting that we have this tendency when we try to go back in time and write a novel or a story that we almost feel like handcuffed that we have to make it, a call like a constant call out to that time period and if we do it in the future we almost don't take enough detail into consideration about like how fast technology will actually move or clothing will change that's why i just put his shirt his pants because i know whenever someone's going to read it they're going to fill in that that time's clothing right or the phone they're going to think of whatever phone happens to be the phone at the time right the one current i did have is um isis rivera the 15 year old witch she likes frozen yogurt so i hope that lasts you know oh, i think it will i don't think that's going anywhere anytime soon no. uh yeah i think you're i think you're safe there um yeah just thinking about the clothing that's a good one you know specific specific help me out here being specific let's just call it that being specific is i know there are a lot of readers that need that grounding or that want that grounding but 
it's not going to cause people to stumble. And I think you're, you're right on. Like if in 30 years, everybody's wearing neon colors, they get a picture they, of those shirts neon. Yeah. Right. Your rule three to me is the one that garners, I think the most discussion. And, uh, I don't think that's, I think that's not a surprise to anybody. This is keeping politics out of the story. Um, I agree with you, but I think there's like offshoots to this discussion. I want to hear your version of the rule before you go any further. There's two, two reasons for the rules. One which goes with my keeping the story timeless. But the other, I think, is a very obvious one. Um, you want as many people reading your book as possible. And if you're political, you know, and you take a side, you are automatically cutting off 50% of your potential readers. Right. That's why you got to leave the politics out of it. Because even if you feel very strong about those politics... Like I said, 50% of the people will agree with you, 50% won't. There goes half your sales. Now, regarding keeping stories timeless, let's be honest. You put, you know, you, you make a innuendo or reference to Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Who's going to get that 50 years from now? You know, that's right. like picking up a book now and reading a, an innuendo or a reference to JFK or Richard Nixon. And it's like you watch Back to the Future. If you put a, a 15 or foot of Back to the Future, are they going to get Doc Brown's joke of, oh, no wonder Ronald Reagan is your president if you have so much you know, video technology? Right. We got that at the time, but who's going to get that now, You know, teenagers who don't know, know anything about Ronald Reagan? I think that the politics and the slang, which is rule four, which we'll, we'll get to that in a second, um, those to me are two rules that, this book I read earlier this year that we covered on the podcast, like broke nine times out of 10, which was, uh, the sun also rises by Ernest Hemingway. I think there's something to writing the most authentic modern piece you can. And just knowing that it's going to either be washed away by time or it's going to become like a, like a time capsule. You kind of have to choose. You can't have a true time capsule say this is what people in 2020 thought without taking some of those i would say breaking a lot of rules where you're like i'm gonna make this as authentic to today as possible but you have to be specific in that right and i feel like when i read the sun also rises it was probably very impactful for the people at the time and it's probably really fun for people to read right uh like looking back on the lost generation but it certainly makes the book age right and yeah I'm just curious if there's like, first of all, do you agree? And second of all, like, is it worth ever going that direction? I guess. I don't think so for that reason. I mean, the, the main thing you don't, you want to make sure is that anything you have in that book is going to attract every possible reader. So for example, journey to new Salem, which is the second book in the witches of Vegas book, you know, series, um, the, the only politics I focus on are the ones that are on this, in this village of witches. And I make sure none of it relates to today's politics because you don't want anybody taking it as such. It's their world. And really, you should stay focused on their world because really, reading fiction should be an escape from the real world. Right. I 100% agree. Um, I, How many times, and not to be uh, not to be bombastic, I guess I'm about to be bombastic, but I've read a lot of synopsis on, like, within writing groups or indie groups or on the internet of indie writers and like i read the synopsis and i say i'm never going to pick this up not because it doesn't fit my genre but because i can just tell that it's just going to be laden with political stuff social stuff i think that that for some people it can be hard to parse out to them what's political and what's not and what happens Um, is those politics end up 
being more important than the entertainment value, than the story. And that becomes a big right. problem with a lot of work that we see every day, you know, even in Hollywood. I think you can be political as long as the story is good. And I know that's that's a very generic way to put it, but I look at, like, The Handmaid's Tale, which is very heavy-handed, but a lot of people love this story regardless of that because it is so, like, I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of this show. I think it's kind of slow, but I can see where people love it. Whereas, like, Elysium was, like, one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Not because it was super heavy-handed, but that didn't help it. Do you remember the movie where they go fly to space? They go fly to space to get free health care is the plot. And look, that is not, like, I'm not here to get into that. But it is, it's, if that story was amazing, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have cared how heavy-handed it is, right? Um, But it is funny how quickly that can lose you as audience when that's all they're focusing on is just that side of it. Right, because yeah. if you want to get into that, there's social media. There's plenty of people that have those discussions. But if you're going to fiction, you you, you want you just want a few hours of being entertained. Each two, you know? Right, and I think it's interesting. There's a lot of stories that today we wouldn't consider them politicized things, but maybe they were back in the day, like Mark Twain pieces. I'm sure that if you wrote a piece about, like, the Revolutionary War, that was a pretty politicized thing, like should America be independent? Should they be taxed or not? Like that was, that wasn't a moral discussion back then. Today it is, you know, back then it wasn't. There's also a big difference though, between, you know, putting politics in and preaching to your audience. Right. The preaching, whether they agree with you or not is going to pull people away because, because, you know, it's not entertaining, you know, even if you agree with them, it's not entertaining. (laughs) I think one of the best pieces of advice with that is one of the things I've heard talked about a second ago brandon sanderson not one of his magic rules but one of his rules on writing is um something that i try to do i I think everybody audience and writers love moral ambiguity moral gray area but i think even when you're having something that is not that moral moral of a gray area or maybe it's political maybe it's religious like to have characters of equal competency arguing those points like if you're gonna have uh, a story revolving um I'll, I'll give you a specific, a specific example. I beta read a book that had to do with an architect and it kind of got uh, into the weeds that Da Vinci Co did with religion and history and things like that. And every character that was like on one side of the aisle was a total idiot. And the, and all the characters that were on the other side of the aisle were like the smartest people in the world. And it just came across as very, very fake because that's not how the real world world works. Even things that we, there are things we disagree with all the time that like, there's reasons that you'll have like Oxford university will host two wildly different people debating and there won't be a conclusion at the end because these are difficult topics. Um, So I, I agree with you. I'm kind of answering for you here, but I, it's amazing how often writing can be just so preachy. Um, And I think you, you made a good distinction preaching versus uh, however you worded it. Uh, just, you know, making a debating. statement. Right, right. And slang. Slang is important because slang changes. So, and and you can prove, you can see this just by reading a 1970s comic book. You know, give me the skinny, you know, you cruising for a bruising. One of my favorites, I actually own a Batman comic book where Batman yells at Robin that you need to focus on being a hero. Stop being so gay, which at the time meant happy. Right. But words words change. So right. if you can use any slang, you want to try to make it generic slang that has that will continue on. 
Like I know the word dude was around in the 80s because they used it in Back to the Future. I don't think, I mean, they also used it when they went back to 1885, but I don't think that was the case there. But the fact that they right. used in those movies meant it was around then, it's around now. Um, words like totally or yo. I was using that when I was a teenager. We still use that today. Yeah, you're almost kind of safe using some of those words like you just described, yo and dude. Like if you kind of want to write late eight, late 2000s, you're probably fine. But yeah, you probably wouldn't use like swag today. Right, because that's going to change. There's a lot of words that's going to change. You want to be careful with that because you don't want people picking it up immediately. And like, I don't understand what he means, you know? <laughs> you, know you know who I think, as, 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 especially as we talk about slang, you know who I think broke all these rules on purpose? A good example of this is Austin Powers. Yes, he did. Like Austin Powers is almost the opposite of all these rules as a as a way to be like a parody as to bad time travel writing, right? You got this guy come back from the 70s. All he does is talk about dates and people from the 70s. All he does is use 70s slang. All he does is talk about political things from the 70s, which is part and of those stories. Because you understand he's a man out of time. Right. Which, by the way, just I just want to bring up my third book, which is Gamble, is my time travel story. Because I always made myself a promise. If I can come up with an original concept for time travel, I was going to um, write it. Okay, so, so I want to hear about the original concept of travel before we kind of wrap up the rule stuff. Because i got a few more things I want to go over. But sure. we, ha- we have to stop right there. Because w- what's your original concept? In the book, the enemy goes back in time and makes a change. And everything changes around the main character who... ISIS actually, who then has to go back through time to events that took place in the first and second book, but after the change. So everything is completely different, even though you realize, no, this is the exact moment. Interesting. So it's the same point in time, but things are different. Because of one change that happened long ago, which deals with the butterfly effect and how everything, everything affects everything else. Right, And the main concepts are trying to figure out what was changed and what she needs to do to fix it. Was there one version of your character that went back in time or do they have to deal with another? Maybe that's a plot twist. You don't have to say that. But I've always been interested with the idea of like if they go back, are they there or are they not? Are they two different versions of the well, same person? she's in the future going there. And there's certain places where she's not recognized because she was never there in the first place and how different things are. And, you know, there's a huge twist at the end probably the, one of the biggest in the series that comes up. But the main the main thing is she's trying to figure things out and realizing everything's the same. And when I just so you know, when I wrote this, I actually had to, on paper, put together three separate timelines. The original timeline, the timeline since the change, and like and a third one, which will be clear, you know, when, when the book is written. I admire not only you doing the story, uh, time travel, but also coming up with an original concept because I've always had that in the back of my mind, but I've also always been terrified of getting the JK Rowling treatment. Like you convent time travel and then you, it like, you don't think it all the way through and then you screw up your entire branding or your entire story forever because people are like, well, what about this time travel thing? And uh, I'm, I'm petrified of that. So I applaud you for, well, I'm critical of any books, TVs, or movies that involves time travel, so I wanted to make sure that this couldn't be criticized, like that I followed every rule and that everything that happened would make sense in the, in the sense of time travel. So you thought it all the way through. You were super thorough. What is your favorite time travel? Like, which story do you think did time travel the best or the most thorough? I love the time machine. H. Yes. Wells. 
um, as far as doing it well. Um, believe it or not, you know who actually, I'll tell you a movie that was actually considered very stupid but handled time travel rules so well. Hot Tub Time Machine. Okay, you're going to have to remind me of the plot because I actually, I was kind of thinking that direction. Uh, I thought you were going to say something like, dude, where's my car, which I don't think has time travel. but no. something. But yeah, you're right. It is on that level of, of stupidity. So how did theirs work? Um, they were in a ta- they were in a a um, hot tub that took them back in time to when back when they were into their teenage original teenage bodies, but with everything they know now. And changes they made actually did like you know had like the the correct you know effect on things, right? And I mean, just you know, like I said, the movie definitely had its dumb moments, but it as far as time travel, it followed the rules very well. It's concrete. Right. Like at one point they get out and they scare the hell out of a squirrel who runs off. And then later they're in the bar and they see a football game they remember. So they bet the other group on the game because they know the result. But the squirrel ended up on the field because he was still freaking out and changed the whole result of the game. Interesting. Yeah. That's the butterfly butterfly effect times two or just like right. in parody form, I guess. Um, I also read... Um, Stephen Baxter did a sequel to The Time Machine called Time Ships, which to me was one of the first books I read as a kid and actually it was one that inspired me to write because I loved it. It was short chapters. Everyone, every chapter had a cliffhanger and it handled time travel so well. It takes place right where Time Machine ends, you know, when he's going back to the future. Right. And the first thing he finds out, everything has changed because if you remember at the end of the book and the movie, which are the same, he's around with his friends and the whole story is him. He was telling them the story and nobody believes them except for Mr. Philby, who's like who he gives that flower to that couldn't possibly have bloomed in this winter. Right. By telling them this, it ended up causing a butterfly effect that everything in the future is the Eloy no longer exists. That sounds awesome. I need to read that. It was great. It was really it was a fantastic story. I've got um, I've got two rules here that I've thought of myself, and I want you to kind of pick them apart in real time. <laughs> and uh, I tried to be, I tried to flesh these out as much as possible. And some of these kind of bleed into what you've already said. So uh, I'm going to say my weaker of the two rules first. So this rule is to limit the author speak, and this kind of goes into what you said about slang where you want to avoid trying to sound i guess too much like the piece you're writing in that could be the that could be your current slang this is more like a blend between i think your politics rule and your slang rule where if you write yourself too much into the story you can write your worldview into the story which i guess is very similar to your politics belief i've seen that a lot with a lot of stories television shows movies about especially like victorian england where they write like this is how things were and they try to make it realistic but it's like that's not really how their society operated back then or how people thought um like they try to make things like too politically forward as opposed to how they were like i kind of get bugged when i see a period piece when it's not really covering the period how how it actually was i'm not saying you have to be explicit or anything like that but that just kind of bugs me. And again, that's more for writing in the past. But it's just something I've noticed is people don't really separate themselves from the characters they're writing very well, especially with those period pieces. I have a theory that's very di- different, at least with my writing, is everybody says, oh, well, you're looking for the author's voice, the author's voice. I don't feel when you're writing a chapter, it should be the author's voice. It should be the character's voice. 
this story should be told from the character. And when you're writing that, you are that character. And you're seeing everything out of his or her eyes. And it's their worldview, not right. the author's. So like when I write for 15-year-olds, obviously, you know, the 15-year-old characters, their worldview is going to be a little bit different than the adults when I write with them, you know, for them. Right. You know, everything. Yeah, I just feel like, work. yeah, I feel like that just gets broken all the time. Like I said, especially with the period pieces, it it irritates me. Um, and they're not doing like a, a, retol- a retelling of how those events happened or anything like that. It's just like they just, they want to insert their modern worldview into period pieces. And I just think that's so... Mm-hmm. It's Strange. like, that's why I don't discuss like current elections in there. Cause I remember my niece when she was 15 years old telling me, you know, around that, that was a huge election. She's like, you know, it doesn't affect me who wins. I don't care. Yeah. So why would a 15 year old, you know, in the book care? <laughs> in, a, in a darker kind of version of this, I saw this um, interview with, I think it was Tarantino. And I don't write pieces like this, so I don't have to touch this with a 10 foot pole. But like, why do you use the N word in your writing? or in your books. He's, he's doing stories that are like, you know, take place on plantations in the 1800s. Like, like if you're writing a 300 page novel and that's your setting probably is either going to happen or maybe just not on scene. Right. And so it's like, that's such a crazy thought to me that we would write a period piece and not, I don't know, even the dark elements of history. I think it's, nice. it's something we've talked about a few times on this pod of just, when you're doing when you're doing historical things, you need to treat history as it was, which is unfortunate at times. You know who did that really well? Did you ever see the movie 1942 or 42, the Jackie Robinson story? Yes, yes. They a did, long time ago. Well, they had a lot of that, the N word and all, but you know that was the time, and yeah. it you know by having that, it really brought you into that time. You know you can't clean it up because that's how the 1940s was. Right. You know, you want to really give, you, you know, your viewer the feel for it. You got to really be in that time, that time. Right. If you're going to tell a story in that time period, at least don't make the the setting or the plot the same, right? It's just, and same thing with the Jackie Robinson story. If you're going to tell his story, unfortunately, it's going to have a lot of crap to go along with it, like the racism elements and stuff. Right. If, he, if they would have written it where he's immediately welcomed into the locker room, well, that's not what happened. Right. You know, and then people won't learn from it because, you know, you have to see like what really happened. And that's what makes us better people. My last rule that I had is a little bit more original. Um, And I think this shows up more on television and on movies. But I see a lot of stories following super heavy with the trends, whether it's the way in which the story is being told or directed like the the narrative style or the tropes that are used or the trend, you know, whether it's like teen dystopian type thing. How many teen movies started out with like a kid running down the stairs and like grabbing one p- piece of breakfast running out the door and then like jumping on their skateboard? Like if you do that, I'm going to immediately think you wrote this in the 2000s, or like the early 2000s. Um, that was yeah, that was the thing back then in TV. Yeah. <laughs> if you I, write a teen dystopian where they get thrown into one of four groups depending on their personality type, and they have to try to escape this world that only teenagers live in, I'm going to think you wrote this in like 2010. There's just certain things that you can do to just like age your story immediately. And, and a lot of that is just like following the most hot trend of the time. Um, 
it's a little unfair because I think there are some really good stories that come from those trends. So I don't want to write off every trendy story as that. And a lot of the reason trends start is because there's a good story that start that, that begins that. Um, it just feels like such an easy way for your story to get lost in the shuffle. If the stuck up rich princess ends up with the poor, with the thug, it's probably an 80s story. Right. Yeah, exactly. Thoughts there. I agree with you. And um, sometimes stories do tend to copy what the trend is because sometimes trend trending will, you know, is what they're trying to do to attract, um, you know, certain viewers, but you also don't want to pander. Right. Which is what happens with these things. I don't have the answer as to how much you should follow the trend versus how much you should make your own original stuff. And I take a little bit of solace in knowing that agents and publishers don't know either because half of the books that hit the shelves follow the trend and they don't sell anything. And then half the books don't follow the trend and like also don't sell anything. So everybody's trying to find the mix right now of that. Like there's no secret answer. I say be original because if you come up with the original concept, you set the trend. Like vampires, werewolves are the big thing, witches, but someone set that trend. Zombies, someone set that trend. Yeah, I think it was interesting. Somebody, an agent, had told me one time, like, never write anything in vampires because that's not selling right now. Right, because eventually the trend dies. I wanted to do, I wanted to involve magicians and magic to go along with the supernatural because I'm trying to set the trend. Right. But where does, like, my my answer to the agent, they're probably correct, but also part of me is, like, why can't a vampire story sell right now? Just because we've deemed there There's so many out there. I know, and I, I, I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit. I'm just, I just think it's interesting that we've deemed ahead of seeing like the first page. What if it's the best first page you've ever read? You know, like it's just interesting to me that we're like, nah, nobody's going to read that right now. I'll tell you what my answer is: a vampire book can sell, but why is why does if there's a thousand vampires books out there, why does yours stand out? And if you put something in there that makes it stand out, then it will sell. I think that's kind of where I land on this. There's another story that came out um, that was a bestseller that was about a boy that goes to a private wizarding boarding school It's called Carry On by uh, Rainbow Rowell or however you say her name. What, the book was not for me. It kind of broke a lot of the rules we've already talked about. Um, but I do think it's interesting that we had room for one more, right? And so it's interesting to me that off the heels of like some of you know Harry Potter, there's people still trying to write that or are successful in writing that and are successful of getting, making a lot of money off of selling that. Um, there's like other movies that have come out, I forget their names. But there's other movies that have come out recently that are stories about private schools filled with magic in England and stuff. And it's oh, like, yeah. we haven't, it's like, that's a new genre now. After Harry Potter came out every year, it's all about, you know, the magic, you know, and, and the magic schools. And, and another one that I just thought of is, is the crime dramas that are specifically mob dramas. And I'm thinking about it because we recently had an episode, like I said, on Casino. And then even before that, we had one uh, earlier this year that touched on some Scorsese stuff. And I just was thinking about, you know, 35 years ago, that was like not even really a genre. And now it's like its own form of drama is like, oh, this is a mob story or like this is a mafia story. Um, They're like Godfather, Goodfellas, Sopranos. Like now it's like its own thing is... I'm just speaking out loud here, but is like secret magic school going to become its own subgenre? Is it already its own subgenre? 
And if so, like, is it really a trend to keep following it, or is it you're just writing in that genre now? Yes, the readers will determine it, you know, because it, it's a trend until people lose interest. Yeah. Well, um, so we have six. I, I, I'm, I'm including my own rules in this, which isn't really fair. Let's start with your four rules just to go over them real quick. Sure. Don't use dates. Try not to be specific with fashion technology. Keep politics out of the story and keep your slang uh, generic are the yeah. main rules. Um, is there any that you've thought of since you since you wrote this or that you would add to this or is there any rule that you're like this is by far the most important um no those are my main you know four i've obviously thought of some but i think it really comes down to those four yeah you know that's how you keep your story you know the slang is generic my whole thinking is as far as you know a kid from the you know an adult from the who was a teenager in the 60s picks it up or you know or teenagers who haven't been born yet pick this story up what will make this book still relevant then? Yeah. Tell us the latest about The Witches of Vegas. What's going on? A few things. So the fourth book is coming out in January, which I titled Witch Way to Vegas. That, along with Introducing a New Enemy, also deals with all the PTSD of everything that happened in the first three books, something mm. that usually doesn't get addressed. Usually they go from one adventure to the other. Um, I'm also working on book five, which is going to be the conclusion and bring everything together. Um, I'm also working on, with the script writer, a script for the first Witches of Vegas book. Um, and our goal is to get that out there into the movies. We have a connection that's actually connected with Netflix. And we're seeing what we can do. You know, we did send it in. They want certain changes. But the goal is to get the Witches of Vegas live. Whether that's incredible. Or on, on streaming. Congrats. That would be amazing. Yeah, I want to hear more about that. That's inter- That's an interesting development. Um, hopefully you get all the creative control in the world. Yes and no. Uh, <laughs> you know, at this point, yes, because, you know, you're putting it together to hand it in. Once it's in, you know, once they take it over, they can make any changes they want. This is your first script you've written? First one, yeah. And I'm working with a script writer. Um, I could also tell you which of Vegas says the first three books are also all out on audio, which I'm very proud of. I work with Jeff Hutchins, who is one of the the best audio people out there. His voice is very familiar because he's actually done movie trailers. I I need to pick that up. That sounds I've been in them. I've actually went to my local library to find a new audio book. And that might be my next choice. Where can we find uh, where can we find your stuff? um, It's on um, the, the audio is on Audible or Amazon. The books themselves are both available in print and digital anywhere online books are sold. You can or you can get them on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, all of them. Um, even Target and Walmart have them. And they're also in certain bookstores where they can be ordered and brought in. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been a, it's been a pleasure having you on. Something you've got a lot Thank of stuff. Having you looking... on the show. It's a pleasure to do this with you as well. You've got a lot of stuff going on. Um, congratulations to all of it. Um, be looking out in January for Mark's latest, and we'll leave all that in the show notes as well for anybody that's interested. Thank you again, Mark. Thank you so much. I appreciate you, again, I appreciate you having me on the show. It was a pleasure speaking with you. 